the Apostle Peter says that um, our brother Paul has written some things which are hard to understand. I think he must have had Romans 7 in mind. Um, uh, But we have the Holy Spirit and we can pray for the illumination of the Spirit as we come to what I think is an exceptionally important text and very little understood. Certainly it wasn't understood by me until I sat down and wrestled with it, um, but hopefully can shed some light on it now. Anyway, won't you please keep the white bulletin open because there's a detailed outline of where we're going in the next few minutes and I think you'll find that a helpful guide and do have the passage, of course, open as well and we'll ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you that you in your mercy have saved us by grace, provided the means of salvation through the cross of Christ. But now in this magnificent letter, we're considering what it means to live under grace. And we need your help. And so we ask that you would rend the heavens and come down, that you would touch hearts and change lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So is Christianity about rules? Uh, Chuck Swindle tells the true story of one of his friends who started out in ministry as a youth pastor. Uh, He was a creative, forward-looking young man and he decided to show the youth group a film about some missionaries. It was very simple, uh, clean, Christian film. But no sooner had the film finished that the elders in the church took him on one side into the church office. Uh, The atmosphere was very obviously tense and uh, they asked him, did you show the young people a film in church? The young man said, well well, yes I did, Uh, is that perhaps a problem? And they replied, well we don't like that. Well, without trying to be argumentative, uh, the youth pastor said this, but but I remember that at the last missionary conference that we had in the church, you showed some PowerPoint slides. And uh, at that point, the senior elder raised his hand as a signal to the young man to stop talking. And then in these words, the senior elder said this, if it's still, it's fine, but if it moves, it's sin. What he was saying was, you know, you you can show PowerPoint slides in church, but if we get into films, well, you're getting into sin. Now, that is a true story, and it's a very, very sad story, because the senior elder was a million miles off course. And I start with that because there are plenty of people who think that Christianity is all about keeping some rules. Uh, They've been to church, they've heard about the Ten Commandments, and they know there are bits of the Bible that speak about the law of God. They might have met people rather like the senior elder in the story I just mentioned. People who invent laws that God never gave, and then insist that people obey them. So it's not surprising, is it, that many people assume that the only way to get right with God is by obeying his laws. That Christianity really is about just keeping a few rules. 
Well, I hope that's not you, but in case it is, let me underline in red pen, that is not true. The New Testament doesn't say that. Um, This letter, of course, was written by the Apostle Paul, and before he was converted, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisees, as you know, are experts in the law, and so here in this chapter, we have an expert opinion. Already, several times in this letter, Paul has said that no one can get right with God by keeping God's law. No matter how much they give themselves to obeying God's commandments, there is absolutely no possibility whatsoever that anybody can get right with God through the law. But of course that raises an important question in our minds, doesn't it? What on earth is the purpose of the law? How does it actually fit into God's plan of salvation? I mean, if I can't get right with God by keeping it, does it actually serve any useful purpose? Can we ignore it? Should we perhaps stop talking about the Ten Commandments and should we start talking about the Ten Suggestions instead? Well, that's the issue that the Apostle Paul begins to answer in our passage this morning. Because Romans chapter 7 is all about the law. There are 25 verses in the chapter and he uses the word law 29 times. So we would be pretty thick, wouldn't we, if we didn't pick up the fact it's all about the law. By the time we finish the chapter, we ought to have grasped something of the significance of the law of God for our lives today. Now, Paul begins with an illustration that everybody can understand. He talks about marriage. And he uses the illustration to make the point that death brings about freedom from the law. Now, that's obvious, isn't it? You can't prosecute someone who's in a cemetery. You can't bring them into court. You can't imprison a corpse. That's the idea in this illustration. Because in verse 2, if you'll look at it, Paul introduces a woman whose husband has died. Before he died, she was not free to marry anybody else. But now he has died. And so she has been set free from the law as it related to her marriage. The law that governed that relationship no longer has any hold on her. It's not relevant. And now she's free to remarry in an honourable and godly way. Now you see, Paul is using that as a picture of what's happened to the Christian. Before we were converted, Paul says we were bound to the law. If you like, we were in a sense married to it. But when we became Christians, that relationship ended. And in verse 4, Paul explains what that means. Have a look at verse 4. 
He says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Now, can you see there's been a death? Paul says that when we became Christians, we died to the law. Now that means there's been a separation. We're no longer bound by the law. We're no longer under its control. And instead, we've been set free to belong to Jesus Christ in order that we can live fruitful lives, lives that are pleasing to Almighty God. Now then you might ask, well, okay, does that mean that the law is a bad thing? Is it past its sell-by date? Can we forget it? No, we can't. Just look at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Well, of course it is. I mean, it was given by God, wasn't it? And it is a reflection of his character. And so Paul, in this passage, goes on to explain that the law of God serves the purposes of God in our lives in four very significant ways. And the first is this. The law reveals sin. Look with me uh, at the middle of verse 7. Crystal clear, you can't miss it. Paul says in the middle of verse 7, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Now, think about this. Everybody in the world has a sense of right and wrong. Sometimes it's distorted, sometimes it's weak, but it's there. People know that it's better not to steal than to steal. People know that it's better to be kind than to be cruel. That it's better not to kill. Everybody, everybody has a sense of morality. But you see, it's not until we begin to take the Bible seriously that we start to understand why wrong things are wrong. Why are some things wrong? That's the question. Why? Why are they wrong? It's not just that they're condemned by society. In other words, it's not just because everybody says they're wrong. That doesn't make them wrong in an absolute sense. And it's not just that we're ashamed about them. Yes, we should feel ashamed when we do wrong things, but that doesn't tell us why they're wrong. And it's not even because it hurts other people. Of course it's wrong to hurt other people. But that is not the essence of what makes wrong things wrong. Now, you see, something is wrong if it is disobedience 
to Almighty God. That is what makes wrong things wrong. As the uh, Westminster Catechism puts it, sin is any want of conformity to the law of God or transgression of the law of God. Think about King David. Um, He puts it very well in Psalm 51. You know the situation. Uh, He's committed murder. He's committed adultery. He's sinned against Uriah by sleeping with his wife. He's sinned against Bathsheba. But when he comes to think about it, he says to Almighty God, against you, you only have I sinned. Now that is absolutely right. Because the essence of sin is that it is against God. So take, for example, the fourth commandment. I I won't embarrass you by asking you to shout it out. But the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, it would pass all of the three tests I just gave you. Think about it. Um, If you don't keep the Sabbath, society is not going to condemn you. So suppose for a moment that your next door neighbour enters the Argus cycle tour. And as you know, the Argus takes place on a Sunday and Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. I doubt very much whether anybody in your neighbourhood would be shaking your heads about that man and saying, that is a disgrace. Because society actually doesn't condemn people for breaking the fourth commandment. And most people today don't feel guilty about breaking the fourth commandment. They don't feel ashamed or embarrassed about it. They don't see anything wrong with it. And they would say, I'm not hurting anybody else. Um, I'm not doing anybody any harm. What's the problem? So society doesn't condemn it. It doesn't make me feel guilty And it doesn't hurt anybody else, so what's wrong with it? But friends, it is wrong. It is wrong. Because it is breaking God's law. God says, keep it holy. What does that mean? It means keep Sunday special. It means keep Sunday for fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. Now, through that illustration, can you see how God's law reveals sin? It shows us what sin is, and we wouldn't know otherwise. And the Bible is particularly useful here because it shows us that sin needn't be uh, an outward word or an action. It can be a thought. It can be a feeling. It can be a motive. Look at what Paul says in the very last sentence of verse 7. He says, For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet. Now that is sheer genius. 
Because Paul there, you see, is picking out the only one of the Ten Commandments that deals specifically with the heart. Because coveting is craving something or someone that God hasn't given to you, but he's given to somebody else. It's actually the only one of the Ten Commandments which is internal. It's within yourself. It's concerning your thoughts, which means that it's invisible to everybody else. I can't tell just by looking at you whether you're coveting or not. So try thinking about the law like this. The law of God is like the sun shining through the windows of a dirty house. Think about it. When the sun shines through the windows, you see the dirt and you see the dust and you see the mess. If it's a a dull and rather cloudy day and the sun is not shining, you don't see it. But when the sun starts to shine, you suddenly realise, don't you, that it's time to take out the vacuum cleaner. It's time to take out the mop and clean the floor, because you haven't done it. The sun didn't create the dirt, did it? No, the sun reveals it. And that is what the law of God does for us. And it is vitally important for our relationship with God. Because the person who doesn't know the Bible doesn't know the true state of their heart. They don't know what sin is. And a society which doesn't know the Bible has got no real idea of its guilt and no real sense of its wrongdoing in the sight of God. And can I say that it's one of the greatest tragedies of the day in which we live and of the nation in which we find ourselves. Because it is a huge obstacle to the gospel. The people are so ignorant of the law of God that they simply don't know how much they are sinning. Half the time when they are sinning, they don't know that they're sinning. And they don't feel that they're sinning. And they would be shocked and really rather irritated if you told them that they were sinning. And so this is the importance of bringing the word of God to bear on the human conscience. People need to know this is what God says, these are God's commandments. And friends, it may be that one of the chief tasks of the Christian church and for some of you younger people in the next generation, that one of the chief tasks will be just to keep repeating and repeating and repeating the commandments of God to people who don't actually want to hear them. Because, you see, until people know what God's law is, they can't repent. And the church, the wider church, has failed with this and it has fallen down with this because they've said, this is too negative. This is going to put people off. It's bad for business. 
So they downplayed the law and by doing that they undermined evangelism. And then they're surprised why people aren't converted. So we need the law because the law reveals sin. That's the first thing. Secondly, and more briefly, the law stimulates sin. Now, friends, this is absolutely astonishing. I don't think I'd seen this quite so clearly until this week. The law of God, in a sense, increases sin. Did you know that was in the Bible? Paul says it three times. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Sin actually used God's commandment to do it. What about verse 9? When the commandment came, sin sprang to life. Verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. Now friends, here is something absolutely mind-boggling. It's staggering. But it is absolutely true. You see, I think we would imagine, wouldn't we, that God's law would restrain sin. That it would restrain it, that it would dampen it down, make it weaker. But Paul says that God's law actually arouses sin and aggravates it and stimulates it and brings it to life. Now let me ask you, were you expecting to hear that when you came to church this morning? But it's a simple fact, isn't it, of human nature. We want to do what we're told not to do. See, if I was to say to you, um, as soon as the service is over, you must not look under the seat you're sitting on. I do not want you to do it. Now, you see, think about it. Until I said that, you never thought for one moment about looking under your seat, did you? I mean, why would you? But as soon as I say that, you say to yourself, well, I wonder... I wonder what's under the seat. I wonder why Simon told me not to look under the seat. When they're having coffee, I'm going to creep back and I'm going to have a quiet look under the seat. The law aggravates sin. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. How many million fruit trees were there in the garden? And God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat the fruit from all the trees in the garden. All the trees in the garden, don't touch that one. Which tree do they go to? I think I've told some of you of a rather embarrassing episode in my own life. When I was a child, I must have been, I I suppose, six or maybe seven And uh, my parents had often said to me, Simon, don't play with matches. And they said it so often that um, in the end I found myself thinking, well, what's the big deal with matches? And uh, then one day when they were out of the house, 
I found some matches and uh, I lit one and I thought to myself, well I wonder what happens if I bring this lit match really close to the dining room curtains and um, I got that calculation wrong no more dining room curtains and uh, as far as I can remember sitting down was a bit of a challenge for at least a week afterwards but you see the point law stimulates sin it encourages it it's a fact the knowledge that we shouldn't do something gives it an added attraction to our fallen nature the producers of books and films know that the best way to boost sales is to get a critic to say don't go and see that film because everybody will because you see there's something perverse and something obstinate in each one of us that reacts against being told what to do or what not to do one writer says that uh, verse 9 in our passage is a bit like a, a, a verbal cartoon drawing with just a few brush strokes and the cartoon shows a man in a room tied to a sleeping monster monsters called sin and the man is kind of just about alive and sin is dozing but then the commandment comes into the room and says to the man in a loud voice kill the monster and what happens? Well, surprise, surprise, the monster wakes up and the monster doesn't want to be killed. And the monster says, well, if it's your life or mine, well, that's an easy choice. And so the man dies, killed by his own monster who was awakened by the law. And that's what Paul is saying, you see, at the end of verse 9, if you'll put your nose on it. When the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The law stimulates and increases sin. Thirdly, the law convicts of sin. This is uh, one of the great positives of the law of God. Uh, the law convicts us of sin. And uh, these verses are rather autobiographical for Paul uh, because there'd been a time when Paul had a very high opinion of himself. He was a proud Pharisee. He could have been the man in Jesus' story who stood in the temple and prayed, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all I possess. As far as I'm concerned, I'm blameless. A Hebrew of the Hebrews right with God if anybody was right with God in Paul's opinion it was him but then came the day when the light of God shone into his dark heart and into his life and he saw a whole bunch of things about himself that he'd never seen before he saw his sin he saw his uncleanness he saw his corruption for the first time. He saw his inability to keep God's law. For example, he says here, 
he saw that he had coveted. He'd coveted people, he'd coveted things. I think particularly Paul had coveted honour and respect. He thought he was a law keeper, but he discovered he was a lawbreaker. And that's what happens when the law of God comes into your life. You think you've kept the law, you think you're a decent, upstanding, moral person, and then you listen to Jesus explaining the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And you say to yourself, well, I thought I'd kept the law. But now, listening to Jesus, when I look at my mind and I look at my lusts, my desires, I find I haven't kept the law, I've broken it. You thought you'd kept the sixth commandment, do not murder. And then you you listen to Jesus explain what that means, what it looks like in practice, and you realise you've been angry and you've hated and you've told lies about people and you say, I've broken the sixth commandment as well. And when the law of God comes into our lives, what we actually find is we've broken all the commandments. We've never kept any of them. And the consequence is in verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. What does that mean? Well, Paul is saying that that when he had this encounter with the law, I died. I died. He's saying, I was overwhelmed with a sense of lostness. Because I realised that I was separated from God and I was separated from life and I saw my helplessness because the law of God had come forcefully to bear upon his conscience. And he was overwhelmed with, with guilt and with fear. And he said, I'm lost. And he cried out to God for mercy. Now you see, so much of this is missing in evangelism today. I think you can tell me if you disagree with me afterwards. Because what happens in evangelism today is that people are urged to come to Christ. But they're never told why. They're not told why they need to come to Christ and why Christ alone can save them. And what does Jesus say about that? Well, we saw it in Luke's Gospel. Jesus says, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. So if I think sin is a small thing, and my sin is a small thing, and Jesus has only forgiven me a small thing, my love for Jesus It's going to be small, isn't it? Indeed, it might be so small that under pressure it disappears altogether. 
But if I realise how great my sin is and how serious it is and how desperate a sinner I've been and how Jesus has saved me from something desperately serious, well, then I'm going to have a great love for Jesus. A serious love that actually might last when life gets tough. Because the more we see our sin, the more we love Jesus. And that's what the law does. It convicts us of sin. And that is no light matter because fourthly and lastly, the law shows us how ugly sin really is. Come with me to verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? In other words, did the law kill me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, I know that's a bit of a mouthful and we could spend all day thinking about it and probably not get to the end of it. But bear with me. What Paul is saying essentially is this. There is nothing more wicked than the abuse of what is good. That's what he's saying. Think about it. Why do we hate and loathe the very mention of child abuse. Well, we loathe it because it feeds on the innocence and goodness of a little child. And the pervert exploits that for his advantage. He takes something good and he uses it for evil. Or the person who comes to the old lady's door and pretends to be a social worker. Uh, she's had good social workers in her home before who've looked after her, treated her well, cared for her. And so she lets this person in and he robs her and beats her up. And we say that is a contemptible crime because this person was hiding under the credit of a social worker. And you see, he's not simply doing something wrong. It's much worse than that. He's using something good to do wrong. And what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 13 is that that is what all sin is. So that through the commandment, which is good, sin might become utterly sinful. That's what he's talking about, you see, in the middle of verse 13. Sin produced death in me through what was good. In other words, sin took hold of the good commandments of God, which are good and which told him to be good, and used those commandments to make Paul worse. And you see, when you think about it, sin always involves taking something good 
and misusing it. Sin involves taking something which is from God and everything comes from God and misusing it. For example, God has given us wonderful bodies. Looking at you this morning, your bodies are much more wonderful than mine. But he's given us intricate, beautiful, complex human bodies. What a wonder they are. God's creation. The human body. And what does sin lead us to do with these wonderful, intricate, complex human bodies, the creation of Almighty God? It takes that body and we make it an instrument for lust and for perversion and for evil. That is the filthy thing of sin. Sin is a parasite on God's good gifts and God's works. Or think of the human mind. What a gift! What a marvel the human mind is! Think of the things that human beings have discovered and thought and inspired. And how do many people use their minds? Their God-given minds. They use them to deny God. To criticise God. To blaspheme God. To argue with God. God has given us physical appetites, appetites for food. Some people become gluttons. God has given us the need for rest. Some people become lazy. God has given us great capacities of soul for worship, the ability to worship. But instead of worshipping God, sin leads people to bow down and worship idols, the gods of our culture. God has given us the ability to create with our minds things that didn't even exist before. That is an amazing human power, creativity. But instead of creating beautiful things in, in art, and in music and in writing, so many people use that God-given creative power to create ugly things and evil things. God gives us our possessions, our homes, our work, and all the good gifts of his bounty, but instead of looking at them with thankfulness, people become greedy, materialistic, grasping. God gives us strength and dignity. These are good things. And sin takes them and twists them and misuses them. God gives us a desire for fulfilment. That's a good thing. And yet how many people seek fulfilment in all the wrong places and in the end, it destroys them. 
or a longing for recognition. That's a God-given gift. You see, there's something in every one of us that cries out, I want to be known. I want to be recognised. I want to be respected. And sin uses that to move people to commit the most appalling crimes so that they'll be remembered for all the wrong reasons. All of God's gifts are good. But sin comes and it takes these good things and it defiles them and it dirties them and it makes them filthy, it pollutes them and it turns them into what is foul and ugly and harmful and hurtful. And what is the result? The result is that sin turns a beautiful world into a desolate hell. Sin turns glorious, happy human beings into selfish, cruel, wretched devils. Sin does that. And what Paul is saying, you see, is that evil is the distortion of good. That's what evil is. Satan himself was once a bright angel in the glory of heaven, wasn't he? And the word of God shows us this, that all things have come from the good God and everything should be used with thanksgiving and obedience for his glory. And we think about all this and we should be saying to ourselves, what have I done with all that God has given me? With all that God has made me, what have I done with what he gave me? What return have I given to him? How have I glorified him? And that, you see, is why Paul says that sin is utterly sinful. And it is the law that reveals it. That's what the law does for us. It's a strange work. The law shows us our sin. It increases our sin. It convicts us of sin. And it makes very plain to us how ugly sin really is. But friends, I want you to listen to me now very, very carefully. Because you see, this is God's mercy. Because it's only when we see all of this that we're actually ready to come to Christ. I find it rather helpful to think of the law of God as a signpost. The law is a signpost given to us by our loving Heavenly Father pointing us to the cross. Because it's only when we're in despair and when we're really down and we know that we are lost and we know that we are helpless and dead, it's only when we look at ourselves with horror and realise what lies ahead of us 
that we're ready to call on Jesus to save us from ourselves and to save us from our sins and to save us from hell and death forever. And he does. He does. He does save everyone who calls on him. Can I ask you, have you called on Christ to save you from your sins? If you haven't, I pray that you will call on him earnestly to do that for you this morning. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, you are the one who lightens our darkness. And if our vision of sin is blurred, help us to see it in all of its ugliness and foulness and deformity. Because sin isn't clever, it isn't cool, it isn't beautiful. It isn't sophisticated. It isn't liberating. It's mean. It's parasitic. It's twisted. It's horrible. Lord, help us to see it. And help us to hate it with our whole beings. Help us to flee it. Father, empty us of pride. Empty us of self-righteousness. Free us from any attempt to point the finger at someone else and blame them. Help us rather to say with the man in Jesus' parable, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we thank you that the more convicted we are of sin, the more we, we shall see how perfect and wonderful Jesus is as our Saviour. Because Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So help us, we pray, to come either for the first time or refresh this morning to the Saviour of sinners. And we ask it in his name and for his glory.